Hello and welcome to Additive Insight, your source of news, interviews and comments on the latest 3D printing and additive manufacturing intelligence, brought to you by TST Magazine. I'm your host Sam Davis and today I'm bringing you the latest episode of our Innovators on Innovators series. Over the next 50 minutes, Anthropology CEO Brad Rothenberg is joined by Matt Whelan, the Head of Engineering for the 600 Series Bot at Ocado Technology. Ocado Technology is part of the same Ocado group as the online supermarket that delivers groceries to the front doors of its customers. In order to do this in the most efficient way possible, the company has implemented AI-powered swarm robotics in its warehouses to pick and move groceries as they are ordered. Through this endeavour, Ocado Technology has turned to 3D printing to support its robotics product development. During the episode, Brad and Matt discuss the impact 3D printing has had inside Ocado, highlighting the benefits of an additive-first approach, the importance of collaboration, and the scope of AM application in robotics. If you like what you hear, don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. For more additive insight, head over to tctmagazine.com where you can subscribe to the print edition of TCT Magazine and our weekly additive insight newsletter for free. Matt, uh, super excited as always to discuss the future of engineering with you. And so, I mean, I could start just for everyone out there, just a little bit of background on Entopology, why we started, why we exist. Um, so Entop is, we're a new generation of engineering software that's built to enable our users and our engineers to leverage the most advanced design processes to deliver the next the next generation of products. And you know, NTOP is built on this really, really new foundational technology that combines geometry analysis and automation all together to create these really optimal design processes that unlock new types of products, whether it's you know lightweighting of aircraft parts um, and space parts, or whether it's you know making better heat exchangers and and thermal applications in in sustainable energy uh, or architecting materials for the for new bioreactors and stuff like that Uh, we're also used in industrial design and consumer products um, and then for mass customization of medical devices and in the manufacturing and tooling space and you know our we're we're currently deployed worldwide across aerospace customers automotive customers medical customers um, and the industrial segment. And again, Matt, really excited to talk with you and, and really hear about some of the stuff, how, how you're using some of the most advanced design methods to deliver what I would consider to be probably the most advanced product leveraging 3D printing and new design tools like NTOP. And so Matt, awesome to have you and uh, love a little That's bit of great. background on Avocado. Technology. It's always a pleasure to see you, Brad. Um, I should I should start by talking about who Ocado Technology are uh, in the same vein. And for, for any UK listeners, you, you may have heard of Ocado.com, um, you know, dutifully delivering groceries to your front door seven days a week. Um, what's less well known is that Ocado Group's actually a global technology provider. So while Ocado.com was founded to transform online grocery. Um, we actually scale that from there to to become a platform provider to retail partners all over the world. Um, now, m- many people thought this was out of reach uh, because grocery logistics is, is uniquely difficult. So we have very large, large basket sizes. We have varying temperature regimes. We've got short shelf lives and, and really thin margins. Um, and we've we've built an awful lot of technology to actually make this industry possible. Uh, so so that, that, that's the sort of journey you go through to get from delivering, you know, strawberries and milk to someone's front door to, to really driving this sort of cutting edge product development. Um, over the years, uh, we've developed really advanced capabilities, automation, robotics and AI. Um, and we licensed that all over the world. And I, I joined about 12 years ago uh, as a software developer. And I worked on the, the orchestration system that actually uh, tells all of our robots where to go. So if you look inside one of our warehouses, you can, you can see this on YouTube if you just search Ocado robots. 
Um, you'll see thousands of machines driving on a large grid structure, uh, and they all have um, a capability to, to lift a box up sort of uh, in, inside themselves and drive it around and put it down somewhere else. Uh, and with enough software backing that, you can turn that into this incredibly high throughput fulfillment machine. Uh, and that, that's the sort of core engine of our, our platform that we deploy all over the world for, um, for our partners. So we've been doing that for a while. Um, and we've, we've just launched a flagship product called the 500 series, which is a phenomenal piece of industrial engineering. Um, it's, it's incredibly reliable. Uh, it's, it's incredibly efficient. And you, you would think that having developed that product, we would have given ourselves a pat on the back and, uh, and, and called it a day and started driving it um, to scale. But what what you'll find if you spend enough time talking to people at Akado Technology is we're, we're rarely satisfied even with being at the cutting edge of an industry. Um, and I, I was leading a small team in Stockholm at the same time that we're looking at a radical shift in the way that we, we think about the design of these bots. And we realized quite quickly into our development process that removing weight was was incredibly powerful for driving value in a product like ours. So when you take the weight out of uh, our bot sort of as a fundamental principle in its design, you end up needing smaller motors to move it around uh, and those are lighter and cheaper. And then you end up needing a smaller battery to power it all and that's lighter and cheaper. And you get into this virtuous circle where you can pull a bunch of weight out of the product. But this product also, has a load of knock-on effects in the other sort of infrastructure that it needs around it. So the big grid structure that holds it up can also become lighter and cheaper. And then the type of special concrete floor that you have to install it on can be lower spec and you can go into brownfield sites and get closer into the uh, industrial, sorry, into the um, dense urban environments closer to the customer. So as we developed, we learned more and more that pulling weight out was absolutely critical. And that, that naturally put us on a, uh, a path to learn about anthropology because we were starting to prototype with additive and we were, it, it was quite quickly obvious that we were going to need to use some really advanced techniques to, to drive a truly lightweight product. And, and that's what anthropology really enables. So we've been playing with it for, I mean, how long have we known each other now, Brad? It's a couple of years, right? A couple couple of years. One was uh, probably like th three or four. I mean, we met in person probably three years ago or so, yeah. but, uh, or met remote. And then you were at the office in the early part of the pandemic and stuff like that. But it's, it's been a, it's been quite a journey. And I mean, for me, I think this is probably the single most advanced product developed using 3D printing and taking advantage of 3D printing. And I think the whole, when you look at the industry, right? Like 3D printing has kind of opened up all of this new untouched design space, right? And the traditional design tools that we use based on CAD, based on the foundational representation of a CAD model, the boundary representation, right? Those, those have a lot of limitations in them. They, they don't allow you to, to they don't have the reliability. They don't have. They can't represent the complexity that's necessary. They can't automate the the design process um, that's needed to to really explore this new design space and take advantage of all this new new design space. And I think what's what's really incredible from for me to see from you guys is really that like. You know, a lot of companies out there see additive in the context of a single part, right? Um, okay, we're going to make this part 10% better so the overall system improves. Now, like like you were saying, right, re reducing weight in one area means you could use lighter motors, and then that has knock spin out, like a, a, what's it called, a feedback loop that's, that creates the whole, the whole system being better. But when you can actually think about how to design the system thinking about leveraging AM and advanced design, you know, that's where you can get the real, real benefits. And so I think it's this kind of like systems level thinking for you guys that allows you to really deliver on that. Because I, again, I think what makes the series 600 robot probably like the best use I would say of additive out there to make an actual system is it's exactly that, the systems level of thinking. 
Um, so we found that we were a real sweet spot for leveraging the the point that the additive industry has now reached. I think I think that was a bit of luck with, with timing. So first of all, we we do the, the robot does a really hard job, right? So, so it has a maximum payload that it has to lift of 35 kilograms, which is fairly substantial. And most of the operations that it, that it needs to do are on the order of millions per year. Um, and we want these to last for a very long time. So you're building real industrial kit. But when you actually look at the, the structural parts of one of those machines, 35 kilograms plus its own weight when you've done a lightweighting exercise, it's not actually that much in terms of, you, know, you, you don't need metal to do it. And the economics of metal additive and polymer additive are wildly different. So if we were trying to lift 100 kilograms, maybe this never would have been possible because you would have needed more, more strength in the past and it, and it just wouldn't have been economical. But for what we were trying to do, we, we realized that plastic was enough and that allowed us to, as you say, go with this real additive first approach to the design. So in, initially we were, you know, we were prototyping with additive like so many people do, but we, we quite quickly set ourselves on a course to go additive first in the design because we were seeing all of these extra benefits. So it really was the best way to get the weight down first and foremost, but also we were starting to get really excited at the the iteration capability that comes with it. Um, because when you are talking about deploying a product, which has all of these knock-on benefits for your sites that you're trying to build, you want to get that into your business as quickly as possible and realize those benefits for yourselves and for your partners. So it was a game of, of speed and how, how fast can you develop this thing? Uh, and additive really is the only way to, to properly move quickly. Yeah, so I think along those lines, you know, your background having before Series 600 building out the, the software systems that allowed the robots to swarm. And I just, again, want to call out, as you mentioned earlier, the YouTube videos of these robots swarming. Like when I first saw those, I thought they were CG. And then actually going and seeing them in real life swarming, I was like, this is this is the future of how warehouses should be. We shouldn't need people in warehouses to like pick up groceries and deliver them. Like we should have robots doing that and have all the stuff coming in one end and all the groceries going out the other end. And it's it's really unbelievable. So I highly recommend if anybody's listening, like for, for those that are listening to, to right now, YouTube, go to Okado Technology YouTube page and look at these robots in the in the warehouses swarming around. Um, and I think, you know, for you, your background in building out the software to make those robots swarm effectively, you know, how did that help kind of break through some of the traditional bottlenecks or traditional processy process bottlenecks with existing tools? And maybe what were some of those bottlenecks also? So the, the way I've de described this before is that my, my background in software makes me sort of stubbornly refuse to accept that any iteration cycle should take longer than about three weeks. Um, now, I, I quite blindly applied that mindset when I entered the hardware development space. But what what the new set of tools available, which includes additive and includes topology and includes sort of cloud-based design tools like Onshape and things like that, which I'd love to talk more about. When you put all of those things together, the, the possibility really was there to treat a hardware product like a sort of agile software development program. Um, and that, that's actually really exciting. That, that has allowed us to build a team that operates in a really different way to, to other hardware development projects. And again, we're at a bit of a sweet spot with the product. It is, it's really complicated, but it's not a Boeing 777. You know, it, it doesn't have teams of thousands of people working on it. Um, it is small enough that we can build our own prototypes in-house. And that's a really important part of driving that iteration cycle. So there are little things that are product specific that allow us to work this way. But it is still generally true that when you put these new design tools in engineers' hands, and then you enable them to get their own prototypes sort of proving whether something works or not quickly, you can, you can get phenomenal pace of development into your teams. And that's just incredibly exciting. 
I mean, I have this theory, which is probably a different podcast for us, that the closer a design engineer is to the actual product, and then the faster they can go from design iteration to product, the more innovative product they can get quicker yeah. than that. So, so we, we're so additive first in our thinking. We will get to the end of a Friday afternoon and have a half-baked design and 3D print it anyway, just so that by the time you come in Monday morning, it's finished and you can have a look at it and, and see if you're on the right track. Um, so, so we treat all of the, the additive tooling that we have in-house, which is a lot now, as effectively free. You know, no, no one's thinking about the filament cost of throwing something in a Markforge machine so that you can try out a mechanism that is just baked in. It's, it's like compiling your code. It's just trying it out. I mean, I think that that approach to hardware development is kind of the the new thinking that we need to like enable the next a new generation of products. And we're actually, you know, we're seeing that now with the stuff that you guys are doing. And I think, you know, it's building out that modern tooling. I mean, the thing I was so impressed with is how connected everything was in the process. Like, you know, a lot of companies out there speak about this quote unquote digital thread, right? Where, which is essentially, if I make a change in the requirements, I want the robot to carry 36 kilograms or 37 kilograms. How quickly and automatically can I generate what the new structure is? Does the structure, does the wall thickness need to increase one millimeter, two millimeters, three millimeters? Like what is, what is the right, how much more material needs to go on this robot to carry more weight? For example, the more automatic and more quick that happens, that's like a pure digital thread. And I think that, you know, as software engineers, we naturally think that way, but in hardware development, it's not really like that. It's much more of all of these millions of requirements coming at different times, and like a change here, testing this, testing that. Um, but like, you know, when, when we conceived of NTOP, you know, we really, like initially we wanted to, to, to kind of enable that type of change in the way people's people are working and kind of leverage concepts from software development to actually drive hardware design. But we realized really quickly that it started with the core representation of how we represent these, these 3D solid models, because in order to iterate really quickly, in order to make a change, and then the the output of that change um, updates in an automatic, fast, and optimal way. So you know if you make a design parameter change and that parameter change gets you closer to the optimal or further away from the optimal, you need to know that, call that like the sensitivity of the design parameter, right? In order to do that in an automatic way, the, the core representation of that thing that you're doing needs to be really robust and reliable. And so that's why with NTOP, we started with the core geometry, this implicit modeling. Um, yeah which enables that and so, so that that plays a really key role in our uh in our iteration cycle so we have um more more than a dozen individually topology optimized parts in our in our chassis right so so the the core structure is um a bunch of topology optimized parts connected with with bonded carbon fiber tubes right that, that's what the the chassis of the 600 series is and we want to be able to change it all the time. So we don't treat the topology optimization as a one-off, high labor, high value piece of work. Now, if you are about to create a bracket for a fighter jet and 3D print it in titanium, you don't mind throwing some engineering hours at it once to get it right before you pay an awful lot of money to have it manufactured. But that's not how we treat it. We see it as something that we should be able to set up and it should sit in a pipeline and we should be able to click go and say, my load cases have changed, give me new parts. Now, if you have tooling, which requires, uh, well, first of all, has a, has a high likelihood of failing to even compute for you. Uh, and secondarily, you might need a large amount of manual work to go and touch up the model on the parts to, to get them right, then that's not viable. You, you, because every time you want to make a change, you're going to have to put you know hours and hours aside or days or weeks or however long it takes to to get parts that are ready for manufacture so we we actually define our load cases in on shape which is where we we design our, our bot um that gives us all of the lovely version control and things that, that come with that tool and then we've set up a 
bunch of software tooling so that we can extract those load cases and the design volumes and feed them into Entopology uh, and actually run a full design of experiments and then generate a, a sort of Pareto front of outcomes. Um, we have a small human intervention to come in and pick the one we like most and do a quick visual sense check. Uh, and then we have more tooling, which allows us to pull it back into Onshape, uh, bo Boolean out some stuff and get it exactly the way we want it. But it should be really low touch, basically, because otherwise you will have things in the way of changing that will make you not pursue the best engineering outcome because it would be too much work or too much effort or too much delay. I mean, that to me is like the best description or definition of like what good design is and how good design can kind of enable these these incredible products. And it seems like like the, you know, what enabled this systems level thinking and systems level approach that was quote unquote AM first, right? Thinking through 3D printing, not not thinking through like, okay, here's the bottleneck of having to like get parts made, do a, you know, limit the geometry, et cetera. It was that that systems approach to the actual engineering stack. So the design system for the robot itself is highly automated. Um, and I think what I'm I'm most interested in is how Onshape and Entop were tied together to really enable that. And we have a, a team in the department called uh, our industrial DevOps team, which is its sort of purpose is to create these kind of value pipelines and automate all the things that we need to do to both successfully iterate our product, successfully launch our product into manufacture and successfully change it once it's already being manufactured at scale, which are three different but related challenges. And we need to nail all of them. So we're very good at the first of those. Um, and the, the sort of launch into manufacture is coming soon. Uh, we're in the you know late stages of, of hardening and finalizing the design of the products before we, we start pushing it into real sites. So there is a need for custom software tooling today to get this done. But you are also, I think, seeing a trend to tools as they shift over to the cloud, becoming more integrated and becoming more sort of tied together in this way. I think that's incredibly exciting for product design in general. So we're, we're happy to sort of trailblaze. We're pretty, uh, you know, pretty good at software ourselves. We don't mind doing a bit of tooling to, to enable our work. But once this becomes commonplace, I think you're going to see much more advanced products coming out uh, with a lot less sort of foresight and investment from the companies doing it. And that's really cool. Yeah, but I think that's kind of what a lot of innovation is ultimately, right? Like, new manufacturing process comes out a new set of software comes out enabling that that software might need to be tied together with legacy processes and new processes all together and as companies start to see the value in deploying these tools i think that's where we're going to see some more of these these connections become hardened into the way just we naturally work because ultimately you know when I look at engineering itself, right, engineering is an exploration process. Engineering is about learning about a problem as you're solving it and getting smarter in it. And if you compress that time to learn, you can get smarter in solving that problem and deliver a solution that's truly innovative. And having these, this fully connected back end kind of hardened into the process, like the value in that is you're literally like making changes to the design and in almost real time, seeing how that affects the outcome of the actual 3D printed, assembled, tested bot on the tracks, which is like unheard of in terms of, you know, normally it's like you make some changes in the design to go to manufacturing, or you, you make some changes in the design, then you run an analysis, shows it's wrong, go back, make some other changes, maybe in the wrong direction, you run the analysis, it's wrong, you go back, make some other changes. Oh, the model broke. Let me make changes this way. You have to do some manual stuff. Okay, finally, I got something that sort of meets my requirements. And now I'm going to wait a couple weeks for some tooling. And I'm going to get it back. And then by the time I put it on the track, test it, it's like, okay, uh, is it good? No. Well, we ran out of time. It's good enough. This is what we're going to have to do. And so we're going to have to build some other downstream requirements to like make sure this thing works. Maybe track has to be twice as thick or something. I don't know. I'm making things up. Um, 
but I, I agree with everything you're saying. I'd just love to know where you can get tooling made in two weeks. Uh, <laughs> I, <laughs> isn't that what Labs has on their website? I don't know. Maybe, I don't know. Maybe. No, it's okay. Six months. Whatever. <laughs>Today's episode is sponsored by 3D Systems. Here, Paul Miller, 3D Systems Materials Product Marketing Manager, introduces Duraform PAX, a new novel SLS nylon photopolymer that promises great mechanical properties for prototypes and end-use parts, long-term stability, and unexpected low cost of ownership. Duraform PAX is a new family of products that uh, we developed in partnership with uh, Adams Grill Tech. And what we're really excited about is its innovation in a space where there hasn't been a ton of types of materials. Duraform PAX is durable, it's tough, um, has really high elongation, and is really flexible. So it opens up a lot of application possibilities. It prints at a very low temperature, which is actually one of its strengths because it's easier on printers and has a really high recycling rate. What we're also really excited about is some of the operational benefits. It is faster to handle. Uh, you can remove it, the part cake, the machine faster after printing, and the breakout of parts. And, and that's where some of the financial benefits help our customers as well. When people hear new and novel, they, they typically jump to, it's gotta be expensive. Um, but, but our pricing strategy with Duraform PAX was intended to encourage adoption as a go-to material, particularly for those customers that are looking for prints with unspecified properties. So you, you still get all those great mechanical properties that we, we talked about, but at generally a lower cost. And then it's the operational benefits. It's the ease of printing. It's the operator intervention, the less service. You don't have any sublimation, which is one of the big challenges people experience with PA11s. Our customers have come to us and said they're really excited to be able to offer an SLS material uh, to their customers that, that they can ship within 24 hours, which is, is truly remarkable. This material is intended for end-use parts. You've got long-term stability and in some cases properties that make it indistinguishable from injection molded parts. Can you talk about that? Today we have two different variants and it's a family that we expect that will we'll grow in the future. We have a, a natural color and a black color. We've tested the color and the mechanical properties out over five years for indoor and outdoor over uh, a year and a half. And the tensile strength, the elongation and color all hold up from the look and the aesthetics of the material, particularly when you vapor hone it, you're able to get some translucency that opens up new applications. So anything where you're trying to look at liquids and anything with thin walls, you'll get that really nice translucency. It's, it's been described from our customers as looking like a, a rigid polypropylene. For the black material, uh, instead of the translucency, you get an additional sheen. So some of these sample applications that we've made is we've introduced texture onto the parts and then vapor honed it. By doing that, it really looks like an injection molded plastic. One of the examples I like to talk about is some of our engineers that work on all these different materials in, in our office and showing these uh, vapor honed SLS parts, people are shocked to believe that they're, they come from SLS. To learn more, head over to mytct.co forward slash 3dspod or visit 3dsystems.com. I mean, and that, that's the thing that, that's so exciting with additive, right? As, as it matures and you, you can finally start to see it through the whole product life cycle. So you can say, I'm not just using this to try out an idea before I sit down uh, and do the quote unquote real engineering to, to turn it into something that's designed for injection molding or die casting, or whatever you end up doing afterwards. When that prototype tooling is, you know, is accurate enough and is cheap enough, which depends on your product, then it it totally changes the way you think because your your prototypes that you're building in-house are basically production grade uh, and you really know how they're going to work. Um, and, then, and there's these other bits as well. So, so because, because we've gone all in on the additive, we've, we've got just over 400 3D printed parts in the bot, right? It's a lot. Um, and sometimes when you make a change, you change one of those parts and that's fine. And sometimes when you make a change, you change 40 of them. You know, so, so we've got belt-driven systems. So let's say I want to move the belt or change the belt length or something. I'm going to change loads of parts because that's going all around the chassis. And it doesn't matter because you can throw it all in the printer and get it out a couple of days later anyway. 
which means that the difference between a minor change and a massive architectural change in terms of how long it takes to fabricate, it's exactly the same. So you you then shift your focus and say, well, that change is really hard in CAD though, right? So how do I get really good at enabling my design teams to, to make those kind of changes quickly? Uh, and then then actually the key to it all becomes your, your collaboration um, and all, all of this new tooling is what enables that and it's so exciting. Yeah, I mean, how it, it's just so impressive and interesting. Like how is the, the collaboration and that aspect of design really driving the, the, the new generation of, of parts and stuff that you guys are doing? So we we design uh, the whole mechanical system in Onshape, which is sort of purely cloud native CAD design. Um, and the bits of it that are really important to us are having good revision control. I mean, I like Onshape because it's like Git, basically. It's not identical, but it's pretty like Git. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you are used to good engineering practice in software, so uh, feature branches, for example, sort of short-lived feature branches, right? make a branch to do some small amount and I get it merged back in as quickly as possible and I can do those in parallel and have a good process around them. Uh, you can just do that in CAD now. That, that wasn't really a thing you could do until pretty recently. Um, we also, in the, in the journey of 600, when we, we stopped being a small sort of uh, R&D outfit and became a, a sort of key delivery function to drive this new product to launch, we added a bunch of teams in the UK. So we were developing this in Stockholm and we made the sort of high level business decision to back the product. And then we really quickly needed to sort of 4X the size of the department. So we seeded some teams in the UK and we suddenly had to learn how to be international. But with cloud tools, it's not actually that hard. Um, you can you can sit and edit the same document from different countries in real time. Um, and that's completely normal. Uh, we, we've pulled in techniques like pair cadding, which is a just, again, stolen directly from software. Pair programming is a really good way to get sort of more robust first passes at a design. Um, there, there, there's loads, but the, the general principle of optimizing everything for how you collaborate and then coupling that with the fact that you can get your iterations really fast um, is, is incredibly powerful. I mean, the, the productivity in the team is extraordinary. And like even the review process, right? Like how are you guys doing review? Like I, I just think what's so phenomenal is like how the it's a full systems level design thinking to like looking at like, okay, first principles, how do we just deliver a lighter weight robot? And so like how for even for design reviews, how is that change? How does that how does that change in some ways? So you need a few things. You you need to track the things that are important to you. So you perhaps write some tools that hit the Onshape API and pull out all of the weight information to give you a summary that you can do anytime you make a change. Um, You want to see which subsystems are driving the weight up and that kind of stuff. Um, You want to use the institutional knowledge that exists in both of your development centers. You want to mix and match your teams a lot and rely on your cloud tooling to get those peer review processes sort of very shared out between the group. Um, and, and for us, well, I mean, we, we have a, a fairly novel approach to how we task uh, engineers as well. So we actually create um, ad hoc sprint teams, as we call them. So every three weeks, we don't look at how the system is divided and then you know, assign teams to a bit of the product and then hope that they've got something interesting to do every time we have a sprint. We look at the complete system. We come up with the problems that we need to solve next, define those, and then everybody actually just assigns themselves to a project team to go and solve those problems. So we create multidisciplinary teams every three weeks, do some work, and then we disband the teams and do it again. Um, and that, that's been quite effective for getting that collaboration across the development centers as well. Because you will pick something that looks interesting and you might work with a bunch of people in the same country as you, or you might be the only person and everyone else is in another country. Um, and it forces you to get good at collaboration. Um, it's it's worth mentioning like as well. Oh, yeah. I, I, think, I think they do. Yeah, we get some really good feedback on it. Um, but it, it is also enabled by the fact that, you know, dis- despite all the, the awful outcomes of the pandemic, one silver lining is that we all got really good at being online with each other. Um, 
people are much better at video conferencing now like the etiquette even has improved and how people know to listen when people put their hands up oh God, i would but, love to like go back before the pandemic and yeah, see what yeah. a zoom because we had zoom rooms before the pandemic started but we probably didn't use them the way we use them yeah. now yeah. you know even just how we as a software company collaborate with you guys and do trainings like doing a training that's in person and virtual or all virtual or all like it's it's the the etiquette of that collaboration is like a new process and yeah maybe that is and, and, and whole life. whole suites of well whole types of tools which either didn't exist or certainly haven't been widely adopted before everyone had to work from home so we do we do a lot of work in in miro for example um you know in insert your online whiteboarding app name of choice here i'm sure there's a suite of them but it is uh, a brilliant way to just do planning together and just sort of especially if like we do you formed a new team and you go well, how should we plan this all together and you haven't really done it before well, you throw a bunch of post-its together on a big online whiteboard and go figure some stuff out and that is that's really natural to people now in a way that i don't think it was a couple of years ago uh, i think we've really benefited from that yeah i was actually impressed with the online whiteboarding tools because i think the last time i looked at them myself was like right at the beginning of the pandemic because there was such a need for it and they were awful and now i watch our product team use them and i get presentations shown in these whiteboarding tools i'm just like okay these have advanced advanced so much and i think you know if you just look at the advancement of all of the tooling that's happening the output is enabling all of these these products at the end of the day at at a scale that's really unbelievable and i think this you know like why try and be like what's so impressive is you guys made it you you specifically made a very clear <clears throat> break from the traditional CAD tools that we normally know. Like you didn't build in NX, you didn't build in Katia. You picked Onshape as the CAD tool for the drawing and design, and Ntop for the optimization of the of these critical strategic components um, for Akata technology. And I think what's what's so interesting is you know the speed at these these tools evolving and processes evolving, we're, we're now starting to see the actual effect. And, and what's so impressive is like the scale of deployment. And I think that's where the story like really, really gets interesting. And so like, I guess from, for you guys too, like what were some of the, like what were some of the, the bottlenecks or what were some of the, the, the other problems that you run to when you're starting to scale up these processes across you know, multiple teams, multiple countries, throughout multiple sprints. Um, so I guess what does that say about the future to deploy these processes beyond just the system of the robot itself, but how does that robot, you know, just like a part to the robot, like the part to the system of the robot, the robot is essentially one part of the system of this overall warehouse. And so it's like a, in some ways, I like to look at product development as this like fractal approach where the processes to make a part better can also be applied at the systems level, can also be applied at like even bigger or bigger systems level. So part to kind of subsystem to system, I guess is the way, more proper way to say it. Yes, yeah, so, so with, with the new tooling and, you know, as I mentioned earlier, the idea that changing one part or changing 40 is sort of the same level of difficulty. Um, that That does overlook one of the more challenging things with hardware which is that it's not as easy to test a software and there are huge considerations when you are talking about getting something manufactured at any reasonable scale so the the flip side of i can iterate really quickly is every time i iterate i go back to near zero knowledge on how my product performs um and let's say you, you have a component and you need to accelerate it live test it for you know 50 million operations or whatever its lifetime requirement is if you casually change that when you've been running your accelerated life testing rig for three months you basically <laughs> re reset all of that work right like oops so, um <laughs> one of the one of the knockdown effects of changing this belt to make it another inch was um you know this qualified part over here which we just ran for three months in the test rig uh we gotta rebuild that and run it again yeah, so so th this is where the 
So I mentioned the sort of the three the three tasks for our industrial DevOps team, right? Who who are a software team, right? But it's it's how do I first of all make change really really good during development? So how do how do I automate bits of of you know checking that the CAD model is good? How do I create these pipelines between tools and all of this like developer efficiency uh, type of work? The, the next phase is how do I get this product into manufacture? Um, and that has a bunch of uh, complexity in terms of creating the data in the right formats and actually getting it to manufacturer's hands in a way that is good. And then the final phase is I'm already manufacturing it. How do I create really high accuracy data packs to handle manufacture to implement a change? So you, you sort of see the, the risk levels going up with each because we've made prototyping really easy for ourselves. So the cost is low to change the design. Um, once you get it into manufacture, it gets much, much higher. Um, and also, all of, as I mentioned, all of the certainty that comes from prior testing sort of degrades in value as you change more and more of the product. And that's something that is not easy to get around. That's just a, a sort of, well, as far as I can see, uh, a kind of a forever challenge with trying to design reliable machines. Um, you have to be able to test them well. So you can use your additive skills to make lots of different rigs and, and test fixtures really quickly, and that's great. But if you need to run something for six minutes, uh, six months to know that it's fit for purpose, then you can't make that six months go away, right? That it's sort of, it, it's usually impossible to go any quicker. So that those are yeah. those are, are this challenges that will remain. Yes, and I think what like. I, I guess the the approach then is like leverage the fact that the prototyping process is quote unquote free to like do as much exploration, as much learning yeah. as possible so that when you do go for that six month extended life testing or the fatigue testing, hopefully it passes the test. Yeah, and then so, so there, there, are, there are other tricks that engineers have up their sleeves outside of prototyping, right? So we've got you know, the, the capability in, in FMEA, we're, we're really good at simulation and FEA. Uh, we've, we've got lots of things that people have been doing for a while before this more radical approach that I'm describing. Um, you need all of them to, to make a good product. And of course, if you are able to get good at understanding and simulation, then you can circumvent some of the need for that physical testing. But You'll never get completely around it, right? You always totally. have to get the thing arm's way. There's a really great video around physical testing where it's a bunch of engineers at Boeing looking at the Dreamliner wing being pulled up, and they're looking at the load meter as it gets as the wing gets pulled up and up and up and up and up and up and up. And you see them like really, really anxious looking at this, and then all of a sudden it passes the the load that they thought the wing would break at. And everybody just goes like, oh, they sigh. <laughs> and it's like the most, it's like such a, like, if you think about all of the time and effort and work that went into setting up that test article and the wing itself was stronger than they predicted. And so all those engineers looking at that were like, oh, because they could have gotten some more weight out. You know, maybe if there, there was a, a more automated process up front, they could have explored, you know, learned more about the problem and figured out that they could have actually reduced the weight of the wing a little bit more, use a little bit less glue or whatever. I don't know enough about how wings attach to airplanes, but. Um, I mean, I I, no, nothing would make me happier than to see that the tooling that exists for product design today become more automated, more connected, and also drive up that confidence that you can have in the product in the digital space before you need to go to physical. So I love prototyping. It is the most fun thing in the world to do. And it's, it's a magical job to have. The idea that you could know the product was going to work before you even needed to do that um, is, is the next level, right? Yeah, and by the way, I was there. obsessed with prototyping also when I was in architecture school. And I wonder if that's what led me ultimately to like think up of NTOP because in the prototyping process, you're making so many changes so quickly and iterating so quickly, like the tooling itself needs to be really, really robust. Yeah. yeah and you need to uh, be able to make advanced, advanced shapes that were not, not possible before. But I think like what, what excites me 
going forward is like really how these new processes can enable other other innovations in product development, right? Like I'm I'm excited to see okay, what's when's the first airplane going to be built using a similar stack and engineering setup and engineering thinking as this? You know, when's the next you know electric vehicle going to be produced with this? What, is there going to be new power systems built and developed like this? Um, so I, I suspect you'll see some of the most exciting use cases coming in the robotic space because the, the two you just mentioned are the two most regulated industries in the world. Um, they, they're exceptionally sort of high quality engineering output, but not fast. So I think you're going to see it in, in robotics and actually a, a lot in our industry in some material handling space. Um, I think you'll see amazing things happen in the next few years as people start to get on top of these technologies. So I, so I have to say yeah. I'm incredibly excited to be part of it. Well, I think that's, I mean, you guys, you guys are at the forefront of this and I think that's what's really impressive and amazing to see. And, um, you know, I think getting, getting this use case out to, to kind of show other engineers out there that are working every single day and running into similar bottlenecks that you guys ran into early on in development processes. And, and you know, maybe they learn from the solutions you guys have done and built better solutions on top of that, or maybe they develop their own solutions because their problems are slightly different. But I think what's what's really interesting is that it's really a new design process, new thought process that's necessary to to really solve the, the new generation of problems that we're running into because you know products product development I feel like in a lot of ways we've just been iter iteratively improving upon the stuff that we've done. And I think what again excites me so much about this series 600 is it's really like a, it opens up a whole new generation of robotics and it's a new, like the fact that you can iterate so quickly on these robot on, on delivering these robots, you know, it could open up again, like, like you're saying new robotic applications that we, that we haven't even thought of where we would have thought, okay, yeah, it would be really cool if I could design something that could pick this part up and move it over here. But I don't know how to prove that or how to make that. My hope is that the the trend is towards us us just becoming better at collaboration as well. Um, I, th I think it's a really common sort of trope with uh, software development. You kind of go to university, you learn how to uh, understand algorithms and, and write some basic code, and then you turn up on the job and you don't know anything because you've never actually shared code with people before. You don't even know how to use a, a repository or a you know, project management tools to tell you what to do or any of this stuff. Um, and a huge amount of the on-the-job training that you get isn't in code. You already know how to write code. Um, you're going to get better at it on the job, but it's it's pulling the tools together is more important. Um, I think what leaders in this space can, can really focus on if they look at this tool chain is focusing on how your teams actually work together and optimizing the tool set for that you, you don't need to tell a mechanical engineer how to think about a part design. They already know how to do it. But some of those dynamics are surprisingly nascent in this space. So you move into hardware and people don't do this very much. It's actually a surprisingly uh, siloed work environment. It's certainly my experience yeah, that, with other teams. That, that might be like the main bottleneck to a lot of organizations we, we, we work with, which is like the siloed nature of the design analysis and testing and automation like that they you know someone will come up with the design throw it over the wall to another group whose responsibility will be to analyze the part yeah. and it's these collaborative ways of working i think that you, it, i don't think they should be underestimated um which is also interesting because i think you know that kind of sits at the core of ntop where like we're not trying to just produce this black box algorithm function in a CAD tool where you like say, hey, give me an optimized part, press a button and get it. Like we've, what we've given, what we're delivering is really this kind of dev and engineering platform 
where you get to define what's important for you and your workflow. And you get to define what design parameter is important. You know, is it a set of beams coming in and you're generating some connection joint between them that needs to be optimal? Is it, you know, is it the thermal performance of the part that, that you're concerned about and you have a set of air flowing on one side and fluid on the other and you need to transfer the, the, the you know, the more thermal energy you can move from the air into the fluid, the better. And so your, your design parameter, these channels that are getting bigger and smaller, like you get to, to define that and set that up. And so, it, and you get to collaborate with other engineers in doing so on those other tools. And I think that that human computer connection, like if I want to kind of wrap, if I, if I was to like have a closing statement on this thing, I think it's really like, like, like we're talking so much about automation, but that automation is enabled by humans and that human computer connection. Like we should let humans do what humans are really, really good at, um, which is deep thinking, solving problems, coming up with really innovative solutions. And then, you know, computers at the end of the day are really dumb. They're like the dumbest machines ever. It's like if you like you have a really dumb machine that could do that just doesn't get tired, that can work all the time. And so the the interface, the CAD tool is really this connection between you as a human working in this problem solving learning way and letting the computer crunch through and help you explore the space and art of what's possible. And I think it's that human computer connection that really is, 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 is a critical component of all of this kind of software thinking. I agree more. I think you need to get the, get the tooling to enable your engineers and then get out of their way uh, and let them be brilliant. I love it. Let them be brilliant. Awesome.